follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaSports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There's a strong link between sports and medicine. If you're not at the top of your medical game, you can't play well, or you just can't play. Welcome to Bruce the Sports Doc with medical expert Dr. Bruce Grossinger. This program looks at advances and breakthroughs in medicine and how it relates to sports. Plus, you'll receive preventative tips and analysis of sports injuries this week. Now, here's Bruce the Sports Doc. Welcome to the newest edition of Bruce the Sports Doc, Inspector the Wizard. We're pleased to have a very special guest today. From Omaha, Nebraska, we have Doug McDermott on the line. How you doing tonight, Doug? Doing pretty good, guys. It's a beautiful night in Omaha. How you guys doing? We're doing pretty well. Uh, we're just here in Philadelphia, and the, you know the weather's pretty great. But uh, you know, Doug, it's uh, it's an honor to have a uh, All American on the show. He was second in scoring this year, averaging twenty three points, and he was a uh, he's a two time Naismith Award winner. So uh, we're pretty happy to have Doug on the show. So. Um, so first question for you, Doug, is that let's start off um, early in your life. Let's let's go back to high school in Ames, Iowa, and uh, you played basketball actually with Harrison Barnes. And uh, what most people don't know about your road to stardom is that you weren't even the best player on your high school team. Talk about the notoriety that Harrison got, and did it motivate you to become just as polarizing a figure in college basketball? Yeah, no doubt. Um... Playing with Harrison was really good for me because I kind of uh, I was under the radar a little bit, and we were still getting a lot of attention. So it kind of prepared me for college, and I feel like Harrison was a really good role model for me because I saw how hard he worked and how much he's accomplished uh, so far. And uh, it's it's great to it's great to see, and it's just extra motivation for me because I know we come from the same place, and uh, you know anything's possible. So. I've accomplished a lot, but there's still a lot more I obviously want to accomplish. You you made two jumps um, between your high school, between your senior year of high school and your freshman year um, at at Creighton University. Um, your your father even was skeptical to put you on the Iowa State um, when he coached there. So talk about what exactly you did basketball wise to improve your game into being an All American superstar. Did you scrimmage a lot? Did you put up a lot of shots on the on the I make basketball machine? Talk about the day in and day out grind that that really took you to the next level. Yeah, you know, I came into college with not a lot of expectations. Uh, I wasn't really even really expecting to play a bunch of the freshmen just because we had so many guys. And then we got a few injuries um, with Ethan Rivey and Casey Harriman. Uh, so I started to work harder. I mean, I, I, I was working hard regardless, but I knew I had to even step up more once I saw those guys go down. So I knew I had to work hard and improve in different areas and kind of went into the season with an open mind, and I, I played well early in the season, and that confidence has kind of been with me ever since. Gotcha. Um, you happen to play with two guys on on this uh, current Creighton roster um, that are from the state of Iowa, with Will Artino, who you played AAU basketball with, and then you mentioned that your father and you knew about Grant Gibbs because you went to Northern Iowa basketball camp. Talk about the relationship that you made with these two individuals as as, uh, as youngsters and how that's translated into your comfort um, playing basketball with them and being with them every day. Yeah, uh, it's it's huge. I mean, because um, we all started from the same place, and we've known each other for so long. I've known Grant pretty much ever since I was really young, and Will I knew more towards my end of years of high school. So I was really comfortable with both of them, and we've all kind of developed. Um, we were kind of all under-the-radar guys, and uh, we feel like it's really cool that we've been able to 
accomplish some special things at Creighton while all the other schools that didn't think we were good enough to play for, even in the state of Iowa, are watching us. So we uh, we take a lot of pride in that, and uh, we're going to continue to build that. So you kind of had a chip on your shoulder, you're saying, because a lot of schools in the state of Iowa, like the University of Iowa and Iowa State, a lot of growing up, a lot of people told you you couldn't play for those programs. So going back to play them, as Creighton has in the Big Ten, um, just talk about those journeys back to Iowa and your motivation to try to beat those teams. Yeah, uh, just a lot of motivation. You know, we play, we played Iowa State my freshman year. Fell, we fell short, uh, but me, me and I played well. And uh, Caleb Corver, who was at Iowa at the time, played really well too. So that was really special. And then we scrimmaged Iowa last year before the season and uh, played well against them, every single one of us. And then. Uh, we obviously go to Drake in Northern Iowa uh, each year, and um, we lost both. We lost both games last year, but um, it still doesn't matter too much because of the way we finished. And uh, I mean, that obviously felt special. So uh, it's great going back to the state of Iowa, knowing we got so much support from fans from our high school towns. Uh, but it just feels even better uh, being able to perform at a good level, so people know that uh, that we're legit. And even though you lost in Iowa, you still took uh, care of home serve at CenturyLink Center and won the Valley. Um, so, yep. so right, uh, a question that I'm pretty curious about, and uh, it, it, this is a question that a lot of Creighton people will know. Um, Grant Gibbs is known as probably the greatest post feeder in Blue Jay history. In sixth grade, yeah. um, when you knew him as a kid, did he ever play like Nick Young? Was he ever a jacker, or was he always that post feeder, always like a pass first point yeah. guard? I, I wanted, I was curious about that. Yeah, he was. Honestly, always a always a really unselfish player. I wouldn't say he uh, was at the role he played for us. Now, I mean, he was. When you're young, you want to get your shots up and you're having fun. But once you kind of mature and you're in college and you're asked to uh, play a different role to win, uh, your 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 role definitely changes. So, when I was younger, Grant, uh, he shot it a little better, <laughs> but he's got through. He's gone through so many injuries where he hasn't been able to be on the floor as much to work on his game. So he's had to kind of adapt to that and be able to impact the games in different ways. Yeah, it's funny because even I play like Grant Gibbs and pick up basketball, and a lot of people are saying, why aren't you looking for your shot? Or that's not a sexy play right there. But, you know, he's just yeah. a guy that gets the job done. And it's just amazing. Maybe, yeah. It's amazing how a guy can... Maybe you can... just can't shoot. Maybe you just can't shoot, Spencer. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe I'll take you one-on-one, yeah, one, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. Doug. Little jabs here on Bruce the Sports Talk. Again, we're here with Doug McDermott speaking to us from Omaha. And uh, speaking of grade school, uh, something that I don't have that you have is you have an older brother, Nick McDermott. Did you guys used to compete out in the backyard like the Harbaugh brothers or like typical brothers? Did you used to go at it with Nick McDermott? Yeah, we uh, we did growing up when I was younger, and then right when I got to high school, that all kind of changed because I started to become taller and better. So he kind of shied away. Oh wow! So I can relate to that. My son doesn't play. You know, I I try to d up my son, and uh, I kind of think I'm in in lead too. So he's lost interest in playing with me as well. (laughs) Nah, you won't take me. No, I hear but, you. Yeah, but Nick, Nick, uh, Nick gave up basketball after his sophomore year of high school, uh, and he started to focus on golf. And uh, he can still beat my butt there, so he's at least had that for him. Uh, so, so he played on the high school golf team. Yep, yep. And he ended up playing in college at Northern Iowa for a couple of years, and just decided that he didn't want to put in as much time, and he wasn't enjoying golf as much, so he wanted to play it more for fun than competitively gotcha so uh so so he pretty much took advantage of you in the years when he could and then he and then he stopped yeah. to make McDermott. all right um you know a, a pretty inside question you know exclusive question i want to ask you is uh does Teresa and sid ever get annoyed by uh by blue jay basketball talk at the dinner table how much x's and o's is going on between your brother um your dad who is <laughs> coach mac and yourself uh we, we try to not talk about basketball as much. I mean, there's still going to be a little, there's still going to be some basketball talk. You know, it's never going to, that's never going to change just because we've grown up all of our life talking about basketball. So she, uh, she doesn't know, she knows nothing about basketball anyway. So 
it's not too annoying for her. She grew up in a wrestling family, so it wasn't. She just kind of sits there and kind of soaks it in, and then tries to change the subject every once in a while. <laughs> um. So um. Uh, we kind of want to pick your brain a little bit here. Uh, when, when we watch you play every time in person, you always give off this calm demeanor on the court. You never seem to let your emotions get the best of you. Um, talk about where that might stem from, uh, your calm demeanor on the basketball court. Uh, you know, I mean, I just try to keep even, kind of even cool, you know, just not try, not try and get too fired up or not try to get too, um, too low. You know, I just kind of the way I like to play because, I do a lot of thinking when I play, and if I get too hyper or too down about something, it's just going to screw up my performance. So I try and stay real calm and just kind of let the game come to me, and uh, I feel like I have an advantage that way against my opponents. So, so you're not, quote-unquote, playing angry like Coach Marshall would say? No, no, definitely not. Definitely not playing angry. I'm just I'm playing to have fun. And, and um, but when you're in the low block and getting rebounds, I mean, th- there's some grind work that you do, but you also show the finesse part of the game. So, um, do you think that do you think that just over practicing makes you that calm? Like you busted in practice, so then you're confident because you practice harder than everyone else. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that that really does make sense. You know, I I, I try and work as hard as I can every off season, every practice, try and just kind of leave it all out there, and then. If I do that, it's, it's going to show in the games, and uh, I'm not going to have to be so worried about um, regretting anything for, from a pep preparation standpoint. So just try and continue to work hard every single day, and uh, hopefully it pays off. And uh, so far it has, so I just got to keep, uh, keep doing what I've been doing, and uh, things, will, uh, things will play itself out. One thing, Doug, I, uh, we had the pleasure of having you come to our city, to Philadelphia, and played a game against Cincinnati, which was really an exciting game. And one thing I noticed about both games, the Cincinnati and the Duke game, when you're at the free throw, throw line, uh, it's all I can't talk very well. But uh, <laughs> sorry, that's why I let him do most of the talking. But when, when oh, you're at the fine. line, it seems like you never miss. And when I watch the NBA, <laughs> yeah. it's like I'm watching playoff games now. I see guys miss, you know. I Zach see, Randolph. I see Zach Randolph go like 0 for 2. So I wonder yeah. how you're, you're, you almost hit every free throw. So give us a little insight about how, when you're up there, you just know you're making it and you're really carrying the weight of your team and you, and you make every free throw. So that's something I really observed. And, and talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, it's just it's a mental approach. You know, uh, you see guys get real rattled at the free throw line. And, you know, and I just look at it as, you know, this is, these are free points. So I got to take advantage of them. And just try and step up there with a really calm mindset and never change my routine. Because uh, once you start messing with your shot or your routine and start to think about it, uh, your free throw percentage just goes down. So at the NCAA tournament, I really like those. I guess I really like those silly hoops. I felt really comfortable. So <laughs> yeah, uh, I just I felt real calm up there. And uh, unfortunately, we couldn't pull it off against Duke. Um, but you know, I felt like uh, I felt like if we could have made some more shots there. Um, in the second half, could have given ourselves a chance, but uh, you know it was it was a great great trip to Philly, and my free throws definitely uh, kind of the story, and you know, I, I didn't miss. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about, like, um, well, you won the Valley a couple times. You won the Valley Championship. But against Duke, you played a 10-30. Was that, like, too late of a start, really? Like, how did that late start, like, impact yeah. you guys? Yeah, it's uh, that was a little too late. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of that just because um, you kind of to you have to sit around all day and wait for it. You know, it's it's kind of depressing. You just want to play the game like you're, especially when you're playing a team like Duke. Uh, it's just like everyone on our team, you know, grew up watching them and wants to beat them so bad, but we have to wait till ten thirty at night. So if we could have played that game around noon or one, we would have been much more fired up. It was everyone just couldn't. You know, we couldn't wait, and uh, we had to wait like too long. But uh, can't can't argue with NCAA. Uh, they got to do it for TV purposes, and uh, so you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I guess it's flattering that they put you on. That they usually put the most exciting game on at the end. That's when they have the most viewers, and they do it all by statistics. We were surprised because usually those games on Sunday are usually afternoon games. They don't usually run them into prime time. 
But obviously, they do, yeah. they, they do Creighton was really a, was a great game. You, you, you know, I, I looked at the ratings. You guys had a, you guys had a ton of ratings. We were we were really thrilled yeah. about it. But I mean, I guess I'll, I'll make an analogy. You know, we, we were watching Golden State, and you know, Stephen Curry had a great game, and then just the last game, just it just was it just wasn't on. But yet he's got to get up and play again. And so, I mean, even the the best players, you know, it seemed like your whole team was was just not on. Like like. It's okay to one or two guys, and um, yep. and I think Duke. I also watch Duke's defense, and they're they're really. Uh, you hear a lot about their offense, and, and but their defense must have been interesting to to, uh, to, yeah. to play. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, they're they're a team where they don't look like they're that athletic, or like you, you feel like yeah, we can we can handle these guys offensively, we can get by them. But once you get out there, I mean, they're they're taught to really pressure and. Even if they don't have the best athletes, they're still going to bust their butts to try and deny passes. Uh, and just they work so well together out there. And yeah. uh, I feel like they got a tough matchup with Louisville uh, yeah. after after we played them. Uh, I guess they played Michigan State first, but I feel like if, if they would have drawn someone else, they could have uh, made it to the Final Four. Uh, but, I mean, it was a, it was a tough game. It was a pretty much to play Duke. I, mean, I wish we could have another shot, but... Um, before we segue, I just want to flip it right back to the free throw conversation. Crane is known for having lights out shooters, and we know Ethan Roggy's just a stone cold iceman from beyond the arc. Do you guys like have? Yeah. Like, do you guys have a Creighton like a basketball machine that rebounds for you and can throw balls out like like an I make machine? I'm just curious how you guys put up that many shots. Yeah, uh, we do have a. We have, a, we have like a gun. I think like every school has them, but ours is pretty old. You can tell it's you can tell it's been through quite a few shooters. Um, <laughs> the cool. So it's uh, the we, cool we've definitely worn it out. Uh, and, you good? And, yeah, and, and that's and that's history there of Kyle with the Corver brothers. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. So, exactly. So go, so from from the Missouri Valley now going to the Big East. Talk about your goals for a first impression and uh, how much it means to you to kind of set that first impression for your last year at Creighton. You know, I think uh, I'm really excited. You know, the new conference is uh, really intriguing, and uh, we're looking forward to be on the East Coast more, and I think it's kind of a way to jumpstart not only our basketball program but our school, because now a lot of people uh, know, not too many people know about Creighton on the East Coast. So I feel like if we can make a name for ourselves in this first year, going to draw in recruits it's going to draw in more students to come to our school and uh i'm really excited about it because I, I really think we can compete and i think we have enough pieces uh to be able to compete so it's going to be really exciting i would in following up on that question i also think it'll be good for you um definitely you know a future nba player and the fact that you'll be able to play madison square garden wells fargo you'll be able to play i guess verizon center and in all these big cities, um, I, I think it'll be great for you to have that experience. You, you've always played in big crowds at home in Omaha. And it's true. Like, mm-hmm. Creighton is such a good school academically. And, you know, people back east just don't know about it. And it's, it's a great school. And, and you really have a chance to carry the flag and really grow the program. And I think it was, um, it was a great move coming back, you know, an unselfish move in looking at, you know, coming back, playing your fourth year, being with your dad, and as I spoke to you and we spoke privately a few days ago, uh, I think it's a great decision, and uh, and I and I we just hope you have a, a great year and really enjoy yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't wait. I really can't. Um, it'll be really exciting. You know, I, I thought hard about going to the NBA, but I just felt like it wasn't right, and uh, I feel like uh, the senior year is going to be really special. So I'm really excited, and I know. Uh, I mean. I know you guys are excited to have us on the East Coast a little more, so it should be cool. Uh, we're going to make the most of it, and uh, we're going to we're going to have a lot of fun with it. Well, definitely. You know, we're the biggest Creighton fans here, and uh, we're really excited when you're on the East Coast. Uh, we'll have some we'll have some weather. Go out and play some golf as we talk about your. You know, I know that's your second favorite sport, but we really appreciate yep. your time tonight. You know, on, a, on an off season night, a beautiful summer night here in Philly and in Omaha. And we certainly are going to be communicating with you along the way. And uh, we want to thank you so much for having, you know, having you be on our program. 
at Voice America Sports. You're welcome back anytime. Doug. Anytime. That's right. You're our biggest yeah. star anyway. And uh, you, just Thanks, have a, you just have a great night, and thanks for being on the show. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Dr. Bruce Grossinger is a board-certified neurologist and managing partner of Grossinger Neuropain Specialist. Serving the Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware areas in the fields of sports medicine, pain management, interventional spinal surgeries, and occupational medicine, Dr. Bruce is the director of the National Sports Concussion Program and works as a senior medical advisor for the National High School Coaches Association. We're involved in the propagation of increased safety measures in all levels of sports participation to render the games safer in terms of brain and spinal injuries. This involves education of athletes, parents, trainers, coaches, and administrators at the amateur and professional levels. Clinical consultations and treatment can be scheduled directly with Dr. Grossinger at 610-521-6063. Visit Dr. Bruce online at brucethesportsdoc.com. Again, for consultations and treatment, call 610-521-6063 or visit brucethesportsdoc.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Bruce the Sports Doc with Dr. Bruce Grossinger. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call in at 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or send an email to bruce at brucethesportsdoc.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, welcome to the newest edition of Bruce the Sports Doc on the Voice America Kids on the Voice America Sports Network. And today we are joined by a very special guest. We are joined by the longtime voice of the Philadelphia Phillies, Chris Wheeler. Chris, how you doing? Hi, Spencer. Nice to be with you. So, Chris, uh, we're just going to get the viewers familiar with your background. You grew up in the Philadelphia area. When did your love for baseball begin? Well, I I was born in 1945, and I grew up in Newtown Square in Delaware County, and uh, I played the game when I was a kid all the time. I loved the Little League, Babe Ruth League, American Legion, one year of uh, one year of the Delco League. I tried to play and realized I wasn't good enough. Uh, but I always went to games. My mom and dad were great and took me to Connie Mac Stadium when I was a kid and, and helped me nurture my love of the game. But I would go to games by myself back in those days. It was a little safer than it is now. And we would take the subway or the bus from the, from the suburbs and just go to Connie Mac Stadium, buy a ticket, and watch a game. So I guess from the time that I can remember, I've always loved baseball and loved being around it. Um, so it was the Philadelphia Athletics back then, am I correct? Well, the A's moved in 1954, uh, and I was nine years old when they moved. But I did remember uh, seeing some of their players. Uh, in fact, when they moved on, um, I, I still followed some of them. But my parents were National League fans, so I, I really didn't follow the A's all that much because they were more Phillies fans. And, you know, what your parents like, usually when you're a kid, you're going to like them too. Absolutely. Uh, so now getting into the prime of your announcing career, um, actually, this was maybe uh, your early announcing career. So you started in 1977, and then three years later, that famous year in 1980, um, you were pleasured to be on hand in announcing the 1980 World Championship team. Talk about that experience and that special season in Phillies baseball. Well, that to me is still the most special season I've ever been involved in. Um, for a variety of reasons, but number one being the, the frustrations of 76, 77, and 78. We got so close. Back in those years, you only had to win three games in postseason. You went to the World Series. It's not like it is now, and we weren't able to do it. And 
in 80, we were able to get over the hump and do it. And um, the main reason, Spencer, why it was so important was those were my guys. We all grew up together. A lot of us were right around the same age. They were the guys that I broke in to the game with in 1971. Boa, Schmidt, Lazinski, Boone, Carlton, all those guys came around right at that time, and we all went through all the frustrations together. Uh, being around the same age, I hung with them a lot. Now I don't hang with players like I could be their grandfather. But back in those days, we were around each other all the time. So to me, that was the, be- the biggest thrill I've had in baseball was-, was being able to be part of that 1980 World Series team. That's really interesting um, that you said that you were friends with uh, Mike Schmidt and the players being around their same age. I just I just was curious. Uh, uh, did you did you ever go out with the players and being an announcer? How much exposure can you have to the guys on road trips and such? Well, they trust they trusted me. Uh, uh, you, you know, once I once I got in the booth, we had our problems. A few of us. Um, because they didn't like me up there talking about them or having to say something critical about them. But we got past that point, and we were we were fine. But uh, it, it, there was a little adjustment, absolutely. There were, And I, what I used to say to them is, well, the things that I see down there, I learned from you guys. So all I'm saying is what you guys taught me is right and wrong about the game. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So be, being a baseball announcer, uh, unlike <laughs> other sports like uh, golf or basketball, it's a slower pace game, and, and it requires a lot of downtime between each pitch and so-called um, quietness or, or dead air between each pitch. Talk about your approach as a commentator, and talk about how you kind of were nurtured into the role of being a baseball announcer and small talk and, and all that sorts of being a, a baseball announcer. Well, first you have to understand that radio and television are two very different uh, mediums. Um, on radio, uh, you have to learn how to do a game a different way. If you're the play-by-play guy, you have to paint a picture. Uh, you have to, you have to, um, you have to be the eyes of the viewer. Uh, I mean, of your listener when they're down there. And if you're the analyst, you have to stay out of the way of the play-by-play guy. So, to me, radio, I love doing radio, but radio can be more difficult to do than television. Television is easier to do because the pictures are there. You can be in the middle of telling a story or, or, or talking about something else, and you see that a ball was just pitched and fouled off. Right. You don't have to worry about saying, here's the stretch, here's the pitch, fouled off. Right. So those are the kind of things that it's so much different when you do television and radio, and you have to learn how to do those. And I've been lucky over the years that uh, I've been able to do both mediums. So in television, um, just as a broadcaster in general, um, for, for, for television, it, it could be more challenging, though, in respects that, is this true or false? You need to have more um, side conversations in television because the viewers can see the ball being fouled off, where on radio, your information and research is just recapping the pitch at hand. Is there more small talk on television because you don't have to say he fouls it off to the left side, where on television, the viewers already know that from seeing that? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, as you know, as television has evolved, and you've seen it as a, as a young guy, um, we have much more in the way of graphics. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff being put up on the screen that we have to, you have to make some comment about it or allude to it. You're, you're dealing now with people sitting in their homes with 60-inch televisions, and, it, and when something pops up on the screen, suppose a fanatic's down there fooling around in the crowd. We can't ignore it. You have to say, well, there's a fanatic having a good time with so-and-so or with his children. Or, so then get back to what you're doing. Um, you, you, you do have a tendency uh, to have to hang on the pictures and make sure that you do say something about what's on the screen. A lot of that you have to work with your producer and your director. Uh, hopefully they will follow you, like when I'll say talk something about the infield in or the outfield shifted one way or the other. They take that shot then to follow you. The good directors and the good producers follow the people on on the air. As far as anecdotes, stories, yeah, that all fits in. I think a lot of that has to do with the pace of the game. If you have a game that's going along, you don't have to fill in with a whole lot of stuff. If you've got a 12-1 game on your hands and you're trying to do some things and entertain a little bit more, I think you have to reach back and try to do some more of those things. 
I've always been of the, of the feeling that I want the game to be carrying what's going on, and I just want to be part of it. I don't want to be the show. Yeah, you, you don't want to take over the show. Um, and that's very insightful and a very complete answer. Um, you spend a lot of time with the play-by-play guy. Talk about your friendship and how important it is to know uh, the play-by-play guy outside of just being an announcer. Well, it's really important to people you work with that you have some rapport with them and you get along. I've done both. I did play-by-play for a lot of years on, on cable television, even on our over-the-air. Uh, so I work with a lot of guys, and I've always felt that if I can draw them in and use their expertise, then everybody sounds better. There's nothing worse than listening to a broadcast where one party sounds uneasy with the other one or one uh, just takes over and kind of ignores the other person who's with them. Sometimes that will happen. Uh, you can tell it. You can you can feel the tension in the booth, and I've always felt the worst thing you can do is transfer that attention to your viewer or your listener. And I've always been very very wary of that. So always, whoever I work with, try my best to make them make them even better, or uh, to try and include them in what I'm doing. And hopefully, they'll try to include me too. Fantastic. Unselfishness comes to mind when you mention that and giving giving a 50-50 slate. So, I mean, we're learning here on the Voice America Sports Network, talking to Chris Wheeler, really about what being an announcer is all about and working with a, uh, a play-by-play guy and uh, bouncing ideas off each other and making them better. Um, so right now I want to kind of get to a more recent topic, which is the Philadelphia Phillies. And you're an expert on this team. You've been watching them. And for my senior project um, from Herodin High School, uh, I was elected uh, to cover a player, and I'm covering outfielder Dominic Brown. He's a young and intriguing player. I know Dominic struggled in the early part of the season. Maybe he was antsy to get underway, but in the last nine games, he's been on a tear. Talk about the progression that Dominic has made so far in this young season, and talk about really what has been the keys to his ignition this year. Well, I, I don't think there's any game harder to play than our game because it's built to make you fail. Everything about it uh, is a, it's a failure sport. So that's number one, is you have to somehow get in your head that you're going to fail and that you have to just keep trying to push on and get better and better. Uh, as far as Dominic goes, he, he's a young kid who's raw. He, he didn't play a whole lot of baseball. It's very obvious that, the, that, that there are things that he has to, to try and learn. He, he is coachable. He has physical ability. Uh, I personally feel that you need a whole year of watching him try to play as an everyday player against right-handed, left-handed pitching, also learning how to play the outfield. And I think you can make it. A, I really uh, have trouble making an evaluation of a player I haven't seen until I see them almost for a whole year, unless they're just exceptional, like when Mike Schmidt came up or somebody like that, and you knew right away you had something on your hands that was different. Um, but as far as Dominic goes, uh, I would kind of like to pass on my judgments on him until I get to see him play a whole year in the major leagues and see if, in fact, he is an everyday player, if, in fact, he's a platoon player, or he's a player that you say, okay, he's a player I would move during the off season. But there's a lot of potential there right now. He's had a nice little run, uh, as you say, for the last um, you know a week or so. But uh, this is a long, long grind of ups and downs of, of going into slumps of the league adjusting to you and you having to adjust back. So many things happen in the course of a long day. And the other thing with him is he's never been able to stay healthy. So we have to keep him healthy for a year, too. So so with Dominic Brown, he... So, so he played football, obviously, growing up in Florida, and he was an All-American in both sports. Would you characterize Dominic in his stage in his career right now as just a raw athlete just learning to play the game and not he needs to become more polished as a ball player? Yeah, I think that's very accurate, and uh, he is an athlete. He can do a lot of things. You can't teach a guy to hit a baseball 450 feet the way that he can do right. and hit a ball as an upper decks and things like that. You don't teach that. That's yeah. natural. That's called bat speed. And you either can do those kind of things or you can't. So, yeah, he can do a lot of things. But you have to understand that the guys that stand on the mound and the scouts and coaches and all and managers from other teams, they sit there before every game and they have all these charts in front of them. And they find your hot and cold zones. 
and they try to get you out as much as possible. Right. So then you have to adjust back, and we'll see what happens with it. Yeah, so you mentioned that baseball is a game of failure, and I just wanted to quickly get into it because we have a couple other questions. But in this in this league of, of baseball, in this modern age, uh, recently we've seen more power to the pitchers. Talk about, do you really think the pitchers have an advantage on the hitters because they can scout and because they are in control of what they're throwing? So is that what you mean by game is a failure is for the batter against the pitcher? Well, you know, pitchers too, but I can't think of anything that's harder to do in sports than hit a baseball on a regular basis. Uh, everything really is against you when you think about how how little time you have to react, how pitchers, how hard they throw nowadays, all the trick pitches that guys have. Uh, the strike zone uh, right now is, is helping the hitters a little bit, and I think hurting pitchers because they shrunk it so much. But still the reactions involved, the hand-eye coordination, I just can't imagine that there's anything harder to do. I, I think... Um, you know, fans have their own feelings on things. I think they sit at home and say, why is the guy swinging a ball in the dirt? Things like that. Well, you, you just don't understand a lot of times when you're behind in the count uh, how defensive you are and how, how tough it is to try and do those kind of things. So um, I think I think hitting, I think hitting there, there can't be anything harder to do than anything harder to do than hit. Pitchers nowadays, uh, you know, hitters don't like pitchers. Pitchers don't like hitters necessarily. Um uh, but uh, uh, as far as as far as the, as the pitchers go, the strike zone, as I said, is so much smaller now. Uh, but these guys, the game has changed a lot, Spencer, in my mind, because of bullpens. Used to be starters would be out there, and you have a guy who's a little bit tired at the end of the game. Now they bring these guys in to throw 95 mile an hour, and they have split oh, yeah. fingers and that kind of thing. It's changed the game. Yeah, and, and five days rest, and, and and you're right. The pitchers, there's definitely more uh, people on the staff pitching, and. Uh, and you're right, it's a great battle between a, a pitcher and a batter. Uh, you now rewind back to, uh, you went to Penn State and uh, probably went into went into communications there as a major. What advice would you have for young sports broadcasters like myself that, uh, that really want to take this career on as a profession? What advice would you give to myself and others along the same path as me that love sports and uh, that pretty much their hobbies right now are watching? Sports. So talk about pros and cons and talk about advice uh, that you would give young sports program. Well, that's such a broad question. There's so many things it would take, you know, it'd take another half hour to really go over. But I, in a nutshell, my advice to kids has always been, when you go there, understand that the people in front of the cameras, behind the microphone, that's the most quote-unquote glamour part of it, maybe the most financially rewarding but there are tons of behind-the-scenes people that work in television and radio that are so important to what we do. Uh, and don't eliminate those kind of things because you may not be able to be in front of the camera or be behind the microphone, but there's all kinds of other things. I've always felt try different things. Let them tell you you can't do it, but keep trying different things. And don't be afraid when you go to college to back it up with another um, another uh, sub-major, whatever they call them nowadays, in case there's a fallback position in case it doesn't work out for what you want to do because there are a lot of jobs in this business nowadays but there's so many people that want to get into it but don't give up on the dream of it uh, and try to do if they tell you good behind the camera get behind the camera give it a try if they want you to work in the control room go work in the control room learn how to do all those kind of things because that may be your role eventually and not in front of the camera okay thank you so much chris again for joining us and uh and really uh, getting great insight into uh, what it takes to be an announcer in this business and giving us also a great feel for the game that you've loved since a kid and that you've played in baseball. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on Bruce the Sports Doc today, and uh, it was an honor having you, and you're welcome back anytime. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, absolutely, uh, Spencer. I enjoy talking with you. I, I wish you the best uh, You know, graduating from high school and then going on to college and and pursue your dream, and uh, you never know. Uh, it, it just may work out for you, but it's one of my pleasures for you. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
Dr. Bruce Grossinger is a board-certified neurologist and managing partner of Grossinger Neuropain Specialist. Serving the Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware areas in the fields of sports medicine, pain management, interventional spinal surgeries, and occupational medicine, Dr. Bruce is the director of the National Sports Concussion Program and works as a senior medical advisor for the National High School Coaches Association. We're involved in the propagation of increased safety measures in all levels of sports participation to render the games safer in terms of brain and spinal injuries. This involves education of athletes, parents, trainers, coaches, and administrators at the amateur and professional levels. Clinical consultations and treatment can be scheduled directly with Dr. Grossinger at 610-521-6063. Visit Dr. Bruce online at brucethesportsdoc.com. Again, for consultations and treatment, call 610-521-6063 or visit brucethesportsdoc.com. Want to experience football from the perspective of two former players who also have coaching experience? Tune in to Sports Info UM with Daryl Oliver and Sam Sword. We'll talk about the drafts, play-by-play, and even what's happening in the offseason. Daryl and Sam have the connections and the knowledge to bring you the inside stories of the game's past, present, and future. We'll cover the camps, on and off field, and everything else, football and beyond. Sports Info UM is heard Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Channel. Okay, sports fans, here's your opportunity to discuss football, America's favorite sport. On an annual basis, millions of people attend, watch, and listen to football, both pro and college. Ray Ellis Sports, an internet talk radio show, was developed with the fan in mind. Join host, former Philadelphia Eagles and Cleveland Browns strong safety, Ray Ellis, on Voice America Sports every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific for exciting, interactive football discussions from the fans' perspective. Tune in every Tuesday at at 1 p.m. Pacific to Ray Ellis Sports right here on the Voice America Network and let's talk football. The opening kickoff is a beauty. It's a fly ball deep right field. That goes O'Neal. He's at the shot. Got it. With 2.8 seconds left. to left. I don't care where they put him. This one is out of here. From high school to the pros, we, we cover, everything. cover everything. Let your voice be heard. Voice America Sports. You are listening to Bruce the Sports Doc with Dr. Bruce Grossinger. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call in at 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or send an email to bruce at brucethesportsdoc.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the next segment of Bruce the Sports Doc. We're dealing with a very important area now, which will be... Injuries to the low back. This could relate to your sports injuries or other types of trauma, such as falls at work or car accidents. This is an area of extreme expertise for grossing or neuropain specialist. If you are within driving distance of the sound of my voice and you have a low back problem, whether it be a disc, whether it be a spinal cord injury, whether it be a car accident or a work accident, please call us for consultation. 610-521-6063. Again, I'm Dr. Bruce Grossinger. Let's start out with the types of injuries in the low back. I like to think of three different main injuries in the low back that are serious. Number one, injuries to the discs. Okay, and they include bulging, protruding, or traumatic discs. That's when the inner core which is the nucleus pulposus, essentially ruptures and breaks through the outer part, which is called the annulus fibrosis. Excuse the Latin. And what happens when a disc breaks out is it moves into an area where a nerve lives, a nerve root. In Latin, the word root is called radic. So when there is a disc problem or a bone spur which presses into a nerve root in the spine, Or, alternatively, if there is a tremendous force, particularly a flexion and extension force to the spine, that could actually tear or partially tear the nerve cables. The nerve cables are oriented such that there's an inner cable, which is like the inner part of a wire, that's called the axon, and there's an outer cable, 
which is called the myelin. So we've talked about different injuries. What? Disc injury. That's one type of injury. Another type of injury is direct trauma to the nerve, stretching or pulling. If the nerve actually gets pulled out of the spinal column, that's called an avulsion. That leaves somebody with a flaccid limb, either an arm or leg, and total weakness. A nerve root avulsion, regrettably, is a very serious problem that's very difficult to treat. Another problem with the lumbar spine is called the facet syndrome. That is, the interconnecting joints are called facets. And in the same area, there are little nerves called median branches. And what happens is, there's injury to those joints and those nerves, and there's usually multiple levels of injury. So our treatment usually involves treating multiple levels, a three on average. So when you have a patient that comes in and tells you, I have back pain, morning stiffness, and you examine them, and they have tenderness overlying the facet joints, that's what we call a facet syndrome. When Tiger Woods injured his neck last year, he did not herniate a disc, but he had a cervical facet syndrome. He required treatment for that problem and eventually recovered. So when we think about it, we look at the back. In the midline area, we see midline discs and nerves. We also think about the facets, which is a vertically oriented group of multi-level nerves and joints. Finally, it's separate and distinct, something called the sacroiliac joint. When the pain is either on one side or both sides, unilateral or bilateral, and when I put my finger right on what we call the dimples of the back, otherwise known as the sacroiliac joint, the posterior superiliac spines, and there's extreme tenderness there. Or alternatively, if there's unleveling, when I look at it carefully, if one of the sacroiliac joints is way higher than the other, I think about something called sacroiliac joint syndrome. Sacroiliac joint syndrome. How does it compare with the other entities? It typically does not radiate down into one or both legs. It's not radiating in character. It's not a radiculopathy. That's the Latin word. Also, it's usually in a different area. It doesn't go up the spine. It doesn't affect multiple levels. It basically is such where you put your finger on the SI joint, there's pain. And there's also two other tests called the Patrick's test, wherein you do a maneuver to the hip and the leg, and also something called a Lasagne's test, which is another provocative test we do in the office. When those tests are positive, they can support the diagnosis of sacroiliac dysfunction. Well, how do you treat sacroiliac dysfunction? Number one, anti-inflammatories, muscle relaxers, physical therapy, myofascial treatment, even gentle manipulation, either osteopathic manipulation or chiropractic manipulation. And also, we do both diagnostic and therapeutic injections. In the operating room, we do this in neuropain specialists. We take a needle, we place it down an x-ray beam directly at the SI joint, and we inject a powerful anti-inflammatory and local anesthetic agent. When that relieves the pain, that's a positive diagnostic test, and there's also a therapeutic component. We usually do up to three injections in the sacroiliac area. Okay, let's go back to diagnosis number one. Disc injuries, lumbar root injuries. How do we treat that? So how do we treat herniated discs? Number one, at the core is a good clinical exam. There are rare cases that represent true surgical emergencies. When somebody has an acute injury to their disc, they herniate it, and they develop an inability to pass urine, or they develop constipation, that is a true emergency. That indicates the likelihood of a spinal cord involvement, or what we call a cauda equina syndrome. That's a big word in Latin. Cauda equina relates to the horse's tail. In that case, we send him to an immediate surgeon who usually does a decompression. They remove the disc with or without a fusion to stabilize the spine. That's unusual, however. 95% or greater, we start off conservatively. Anti-inflammatory medicines, muscle relaxers, physical therapy, rest, stretching, second-tier treatment, 
we do epidural injections in our office. That means in an operating room, we place a needle at the level of the disc, above or below it. We inject corticosteroids, local anesthetic agents. We usually do two or three of these injections over a period of four to six weeks. In our hands, the epidural injections have a 70% chance of significantly impacting on the patient's problem. They don't remove the disc, but they usually can induce a relative remission and they allow the patient to continue their activities. So, review. Disc injuries. Unless there's a true surgical emergency, we use physical therapy, medicines, injections. We also believe gentle mobilization, which can be done by a physical therapist or can be done safely by a chiropractic physician, are very important tools in the treatment of lumbar disc injuries. We talked about sacroiliac dysfunction, pain in the butt, literally, and these problems are treated by medicine, mobilization, and injections directly to the sacroiliac joint. The way we do our injections, we use a special x-ray machine called a fluoroscope, so we have actual pictures of the needle, we can see where the medicine is going, and we can follow that up and we can share that with the patient. I believe at the core of the treatment of low back injuries is good communication, interaction between the doctor and the patient. And again, we can see low back injuries at a host of scenarios. We can see them from car accidents, work injuries, and particularly in the sporting environment. Oftentimes, it's a twist, it's an acceleration, it's a deceleration, it's a slip and fall. We see it a lot in the wintertime. Black ice, head over heels, I landed on my back. And when they come to us, we have to decide whether it's a serious neurological injury. Another class of back injuries are the non-serious variety, what we call the simple strain and sprain, soft tissue injuries. These injuries get better, typically in four to six weeks. They require no formal um, injections or surgical treatment. They often don't require even CAT scans or MRIs. They usually get better with rest, anti-inflammatory medicines, something called a Medrol dose pack, which is a methyl prednisolone pack over five days, gentle physical therapy, chiropractic care, and time. So if it's a simple low back strain, they get better. However, we see so many patients who are told by their doctors or by whomever, don't worry about it, you have a simple strain. They go ahead and they get evaluated. They get a careful exam by a neurologist. We find they need MRIs. And it turns out that they fall in the other category of the more serious big three. Lumbar disc injuries, nerve injuries, that's one category. Lumbar facet injuries and sacroiliac injuries. We're going to reinforce this particular discussion on future dialogues with you, the listener at Voice America Sports. This concludes this segment of Bruce the Sports Doc. I will continue to help you journey through Nerveland, Dr. Bruce Grossinger. I thank you so much for listening. Thanks for joining the discussion this week on Bruce the Sports Doc. Tune in next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with Dr. Bruce Grossinger on the Voice America Sports Channel. We'll see you then.